Thanks very much, uh, Monica. And it's my pleasure to uh, introduce today to you uh, Dr. Raj Gandhi, uh, who uh, is coming to us from the opposite coast. Uh, Raj is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School uh, and at Massachusetts General Hospital, um, and uh, has played a major role in our understanding of uh, therapeutics of uh, HIV uh, and, and now SARS-CoV-2 being uh, very involved in guidelines panels about uh, management of this disease. The good news is that there actually are things we can do for SARS-CoV-2, specific interactions, and uh, we're moving away from the cleanup that we used to be dealing with, with um, immunomodulation, latent disease, to actually specific uh, interventions early in the disease, which are having a bigger and bigger impact on the, on the uh, disease. So without further ado, let me turn the uh, microphone, uh, so to speak, over to uh, my colleague, Raj Gandhi. Raj? Good to be here. Thank you uh, for inviting me. I'm going to be talking about current options for treating COVID-19. Um, and this is current as of today at 930 uh, Pacific with some late breaking updates from this morning. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, here are my financial relationships. And here are our objectives. We're going to talk about treatment for non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19, including some new and interesting drugs. Uh, we'll talk about the use of monoclonal antibodies to prevent COVID-19, and we'll talk about some therapies for people hospitalized for COVID-19. So the way I'd like to frame this talk is in the context of the COVID-19 spectrum. People with COVID-19 start off with a positive test, but with no symptoms. They're either asymptomatic or if they're going to develop infection, pre-symptomatic. They then go on to develop mild illness with fever, cough, taste, smell changes, but no shortness of breath. Moderate illness is defined as having a preserved oxygen saturation, but evidence either clinical or radiographic of lower respiratory tract disease. And then severe illness is when people end up in the hospital with hypoxemia, tachypnea, and extensive lung infiltrates. And of course, critical illness is when they have respiratory failure and multi-organ dysfunction. The reason why I put this up is because the pathogenesis um, differs depending on the phase of the disease. Uh, viral replication peaks just before someone becomes symptomatic and then tends, at least in the nasopharynx, to begin to diminish by the time they enter severe disease. Whereas inflammation really comes to the fore um, when people are hospitalized with severe disease and um, into critical illness. And this is why we think that antivirals, of which we'll talk about several, are probably most well-suited to treat mild to moderate disease and anti-inflammatories, and we'll talk about those as well, are um, in their um, heyday in terms of uh, the severity critical illness. That's where they have their impact. So let's start with antibody therapies. Um, I think um, the rationale from antibodies for antibodies is provided by this slide. In an early study, it was noted that people who end up with um, fatal COVID-19 um, have delayed production of neutralizing antibodies. So if you look over to your right, you'll see uh, mortality is much, much higher in people who have delayed or late neutralizing antibodies compared to those who have early neutralizing antibodies. And this led to the idea that perhaps pr providing passive immunity through antibody therapy might improve clinical outcomes. So here are several of the phase three uh, placebo-controlled clinical trials. These are done in non-hospitalized patients with mild to moderate COVID-19. And importantly, these are done in people who have at least one risk factor for severe COVID-19. Why are they done this way? Largely it's because we, in order to see an effect of a drug or an antibody, we need to have a, a population, a group of patients who are at relatively high risk for developing severe outcomes. 
And so all of the studies I'm about to show you are really done in that, in that group. So the top three are, are antibodies that you may have used or may be familiar with. These are authorized in the United States. Um, they all essentially reduce hospitalization and death when given early by 70 to 85%. There's three additional antibodies that are not yet authorized in the US. Um, they're listed in the bottom three rows. Now, one of which was studied by the Active2 network here in the US um, with a 78% reduction in hospitalization and death. One of which we'll come back to uh, that's being uh, used for pre-exposure prophylaxis, studied for pre-exposure prophylaxis, that's called tixagevimab, silgevimab. And then the last of which, the very bottom, is authorized um, or approved actually in South Korea. So in the United States, the three antibody products that are authorized for treatment are listed here. These are for non-hospitalized patients, mild to moderate COVID-19 at high risk for progression. That's that, that clinical trial criterion that I mentioned. And within 10 days of symptom onset. And these are bamlanivimab, etasevimab, casarivimab, imdevimab, and then citrovimab, which is a fairly broad spectrum uh, anti-COVID, uh, anti-coronavirus um, antibody. Two of these three are also authorized for post-exposure prophylaxis. These are bamlanivimab, etasevimab given intravenously, casarivimab, imdevimab, which is studied, well-studied given subcutaneously for post-exposure prophylaxis, less well-studied for subcutaneous administration for treatment. Um, and this is also authorized for post-exposure prophylaxis, both of these. And those who are not fully vaccinated or in those who are immunocompromised. And then last, um, tixagevimab, silgevimab is a long-acting anti-spike antibodies that's been studied and reported for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And it's been considered by the FDA and the European Medicines Association based on a study called PROVENT. So I'm gonna just spend a minute on what the PROVENT study is. Um, this is one of the more recent um, studies to come down the pike and therefore I think um, deserves a little bit of attention. Um, this is a study of intramuscular antibodies. So the ones I've been talking about are either given intravenously or in the case of uh, casarivimab and devimab given subcutaneously, but this product, this long acting product is given intramuscularly. Uh, 7,900 people were screened for this study. Um, importantly, and this is the one to focus on, the key exclusion criteria is that um, people who had prior vaccination uh, were not included in the data you're about to see. Um, and when we get to the, uh, so that's important when we think about this. They're randomized two to one to get the long acting antibodies intramuscularly or to get placebo. So a little over um, 3,400 in the antibodies group, a little over 1,700 in the placebo group. And the primary endpoint of this PrEP trial uh, was um, essentially symptomatic COVID. Who was in Provent? This is important. 43% um, of them had a uh, age over the age of 60. You see the other comorbidities at the bottom, uh, obesity, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. But only a small percentage, just under 4% were immunosuppressed. Here are the data, essentially 77% um, reduction in symptomatic COVID-19 in the people who got pre-exposure prophylaxis. So this has been considered, as I mentioned, by the FDA and by the uh, EMA in Europe. Um, I think its greatest um, use, if authorized, would be for immunosuppressed patients. Um, we don't have data on how this, um, whether this improves outcomes on top of vaccines. As I mentioned, the data that we have are in unvaccinated hosts. And so I view this as an antibody that in our most heavily immunosuppressed patients where our vaccines are not 
um, giving the desired um, um, protection, that's where, if authorized, this, this might have a role and, and something I'm happy to come back to during the discussion. Word about antibodies and SARS-CoV-2 variants. Um, this has been rapidly evolving, but it seems to have reached some kind of fixation with, with Delta. So among the variants, the alpha or the B117 variant originally from the, uh, noted in the UK is susceptible essentially to all the authorized antibodies. It was the beta and the gamma variants, um, the beta first detected in South Africa, the gamma first detected in, in South America, they have markedly reduced susceptibility to bamlanivimab, etisevimab in lab activities. And that's why during the summer of 2021, the US government stopped distributing um, bamlanivimab, etisevimab to parts of the country where these were rising in frequency. Casarivimab and nimdevimab, as well as citrovimab were expected to retain activity against both beta and gamma. Now, as we've gone to fixation with Delta, Essentially, all of these three antibodies are expected to have activity, and that's why in September 2021, the government started redistributing uh, BAMEDI along with the other products um, as Delta took over. So a word about small molecule antivirals for SARS-CoV-2. Um, we'll start with molnupiravir. This is an oral inhibitor of SARS-CoV-2 replication. It has a mechanism that... that um, has a terrible name. It's called viral error catastrophe. Essentially what that's, the inhibitor is doing is it's making the virus mutate itself to the point that it can't replicate. Um, the data that you're um, probably seeing thus far in the press is from the phase three move out study. Uh, this was an industry sponsored study uh, that was done in non-hospitalized adults, mild to moderate COVID-19, one or more risk factor for severe disease, and symptom onset within five days of study randomization. The drug is 800 milligrams twice a day or placebo for five days. The way it's formulated, this is four 200 milligram pills of the molnupiravir twice a day. Um, uh, recently, an interim analysis was reported in, the, in a press release of 775 people. Um, who was in this trial? What we know thus far is that the median age was in the mid 40s. Only one in seven or so were over the age of 60. Uh, this was done um, um, worldwide. Um, actually, the highest number of sites were in Latin America. Obesity was present in 77% of the participants, diabetes in 14%. You see the results on the right in the table. 7.3% uh, of the people who got molnupiravir um, required hospitalization or died, and 14% in the placebo group. There were no deaths in the molnupiravir group, eight in the placebo group. If you take the aggregate of hospitalization and death, uh, that's a 48% reduction in hospitalization and death with this five-day course of, of the oral drug. It appeared in a subset where they had virology to be active against gamma, delta, and mu. Um, this was authorized a few days ago in the UK. Um, it's now being considered uh, by the US FDA with an advisory meeting scheduled for the end of this month. From the information from the UK, um, it appears that it's authorized with no dose adjustments for renal or hepatic impairment and no expected or identified drug-drug interactions. Even more recently from this morning um, is another small molecule antiviral for SARS-CoV-2. This has the attractive name of, that you see up on your screen right there, starting with the PF. Um, friends of the molecule call it the 332 molecule. This is an oral SARS-CoV-2 uh, protease inhibitor. It's given with a, a drug that we're familiar with from HIV, ritonavir as a pharmacologic booster. 
the study that was um, reported in press release this morning is the phase two, three EPIC trial. This two was done in high risk, non-hospitalized patients, randomized to receive 332 ritonavir. This is three pills every 12 hours or placebo for five days. What's being reported is an interim analysis of patients treated within three days of symptom onset, just under, under 775 people. You see the results on the right. 0.8% uh, hospitalization and death in the, in, the, in the drug group versus a 7% hospitalization and death uh, in the placebo group. This represents an 89% reduction. No deaths in the, in the drug group, um, seven deaths in the placebo group. Um, there's a similar reduction in hospitalization and death among people treated within five days of symptom onset. This is a little bit larger group. Um, so um, we will see where this goes, but this is what we know uh, thus far. This particular molecule, 332, this, this oral drug, is also being evaluated in lower risk patients, including those who've been vaccinated, who have breakthrough infection, and for post-exposure prophylaxis. And, and the drug I mentioned before, molnupiravir, is also being evaluated or will be evaluated for post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, let's shift from our, um, to one last small molecule. This is uh, remdesivir, and this will kind of lead into our discussion of hospitalized patients. So remdesivir um, was approved uh, last year. It's a nucleotide prodrug, inhibits the viral RNA polymerase. So you're, you're seeing the different parts of the viral life cycle, works as a ter chain terminator. A study that was presented at ID Week recently uh, in October was done in non-hospitalized individuals with remdesivir. We, we mainly know remdesivir from its approved indication in hospitalized patients. This trial was done in non-hospitalized individuals earlier in the course of infection. So in Pine Tree, uh, people were at high risk. They had symptoms for seven days or less. They were given intravenous remdesivir for three days versus placebo. So remdesivir thus far exists only as an intravenous formulation. What you see on your right on the, on this, um, in the slide is that 87% reduction in hospitalization and death. Interestingly, and this is quite interesting, is that there was no effect of remdesivir on nasopharyngeal SARS-CoV-2 levels. If you think back way back to 2020, um, animal studies with remdesivir um, with COVID also did not show an effect of this drug on nasopharyngeal SARS-CoV-2 levels. It showed an effect in the animal's lungs. And so it may be that the drug is essentially concentrated in the lungs or its impact is measurable in the lungs, but not uh, measurable in the nasopharynx. Um, happy again to come back to remdesivir because we're gonna talk about it in just a minute in the hospitalized setting. And this then will be our introduction to those people with severe or critical COVID-19 where the treatments are gonna begin to differ. So now we're over on the far right part of the spectrum of severe and critical disease. This is again, where inflammation comes to the fore. But before we talk about anti-inflammatories, we're gonna talk about remdesivir for hospitalized patients. So the trial that got remdesivir approved largely was the ACT-1 study sponsored by the NIH. Um, this was done in people hospitalized with COVID. They had lower respiratory tract infection. They either got remdesivir or placebo. What was notable about ACT-1 is remdesivir was associated with, a, with clinical recovery. The, the recovery in the people who got remdesivir was 10 days versus 15 days in the placebo group. The mortality in ACT-1 with remdesivir was just over 11%, and the mortality with placebo was just over 15%. So this was a hazard ratio of 0.73, not quite statistically significant. 
What also was the case is that the benefit of remdesivir was clearest in those who were on supplemental oxygen, low flow oxygen, but not yet on high flow, not yet uh, intubated. Now, two other studies have come out, two large studies that have gotten a lot of appropriate attention. One is Solidarity, done by the, uh, sponsored by the WHO, done in over 30 countries. This was an open label randomized study, and you see essentially no effect at all of remdesivir on mortality. You see uh, the control in the remdesivir curves in terms of mortality um, with no daylight between them. Here are the discovery studies that were, here's another study called Discovery that was uh, published more recently. This was done in Europe. Also an open label randomized trial. More than 50% of the people who were in Discovery were also in solidarities. Um, the median symptom duration in the people who got hospitalized in, in Europe for the discovery trial was nine days. And what you're seeing on your far right are the ordinal scales, that is the clinical severity, and there was no effect of remdesivir on clinical status or mortality. Now, one point to make about both solidarity and discovery is unlike ACT-1, these were open-label studies, which of course means that the clinician and the patient knew whether they weren't or were not were or were not getting remdesivir. And that can have an effect on how long people are kept in the hospital uh, because the clinician might continue the remdesivir until um, if they know that they're getting it, whereas they're less likely to do so if they're getting placebo. So where does that leave remdesivir for hospitalized patients? This is my perspective. I think the data we have thus far is that early treatment is more likely to confer benefit than later initiation. That comes from both the pine tree study, which I mentioned before, where in non-hospitalized patients with symptoms less than 77 days, there was an 87% reduction in hospitalization and death. But even in ACT-1, if you looked at symptom duration, remdesivir better is on the right. 10 days or less of symptoms in that group, um, and it is a subgroup analysis, it's, it's post-hoc, but in that group, that's where you saw the benefit of remdesivir. And once people were ill for longer periods of time, uh, no definitive benefit of rem remdesivir. So I think remdesivir may have a role in treating COVID-19, but its benefit is likely greatest if started early. If it's started when someone is sick enough that their oxygen requirement is increasing, uh, then I think we must combine it with immunomodulation. And in terms of immunomodulation, dexamethasone has become kind of the workhorse for, for therapy in terms of anti-inflammatories for COVID-19. This is based on a study that I suspect those who care for people in the hospital are familiar with called recovery. Open label study randomized among people hospitalized with COVID-19. Dexamethasone was given for up to 10 days or until people got well enough to leave the hospital in about 2,100 people, or they got usual care without dexamethasone in about 4,300 people. What you're seeing in the table is if you took all comers, um, a 17% reduction in mortality, that's that relative risk of 0.83, so 17% reduction in mortality. The benefit was even greater if someone was on mechanical ventilation or ECMO, there the benefit was a 36% reduction or a 0.64. If they were on oxygen but not on mechanical ventilation, they did have a statistically significant benefit, 18% um, uh, reduction in mortality. But here's the important point. No oxygen hospitalized patients had an increase in mortality, not significant, but a trend in the wrong direction. So dexamethasone does decrease mortality among those requiring oxygen. No benefit with potential harm in those not requiring oxygen. And the tragedy that unfolded in India in 
part, there were many reasons, but inappropriate use of dexamethasone in outpatients not yet on oxygen certainly did not, certainly contributed in part um, to the high mortality and some of the complications uh, such as um, mucormycosis and other super infections. So clearly not to be used in people not requiring oxygen. Anti-IL-6 inhibitors, another immunomodulator. Um, the reason why this got a lot of interest in 2020 is if you look back at one of the very first trial studies on COVID, not trials, but descriptive uh, studies on COVID, in, in elevated interleukin-6 levels were associated with worse clinical outcomes. So if you look to the right, you see among the survivors, um, the interleukin-6 levels was much, much lower among, than among the non-survivors. And this then led to the idea that, that elevated IL-6 is part of that dysregulated inflammatory response that can occur in severe COVID. Now, early observational studies suggested a possible benefit of IL-6 inhibition, but then early randomized studies, many done before the dexamethasone era, did not show mortality benefit. What really put um, IL-6 blockade over the top in terms of um, recommendation was um, data from the steroid era, starting with REMAP-CAP. This is a study done in essentially in people on their way to the ICU. So these are people who are within 24 hours of, of basically entering an ICU, more than 80% on steroids. And what you're seeing on the graphic is the red is control, and then the other two lines, the purple and the blue are IL-6 blockers. And you're seeing improved survival in this group of rapidly worsening patients. The same UK study that gave us dexamethasone also studied uh, tocilizumab, an IL-6 blocker. This was hospitalized patients with progressive COVID-19. Patients were hypoxic. They had a C-reactive protein that was high, 75 or more. Again, 80% were on steroids. And what you're seeing in the graphic on the bottom right is a lower mortality in the red with tocilizumab than in the usual care group uh, without tocilizumab. And then the, the last immunomodulator I'll mention is called baricitinib. This is what's called a JAK inhibitor. What these do is they tamp down inflammation, they reduce cytokine production. They're, they're used, for example, for rheumatologic diseases. Baricitinib is also proposed to have an antiviral effect. An important study led by a, a colleague, Vince Marconi, the co-barrier study, 1,500 hospitalized patients with COVID pneumonia, elevated inflammatory markers, got either baricitinib or placebo. Again, about 80% got steroids. And the mortality was, was substantially lower, 43% um, lower with baricitinib. So it was 8% with baricitinib, 13% with placebo. The group that had the highest um, benefit, the greatest benefit, I should say, was in those who were getting high flow oxygen, non-invasive ventilation, that the people on the verge of, of entering the ICU. So based on these data, for people who are hospitalized, getting worse on high flow on their way to the ICU, the NIH Treatment Guidelines Panel recommends dexamethasone with or without remdesivir. And then also adding either baricitinib or IV tocilizumab, not both because we don't know the safety of combining the two. And so a lot of this is based on supply, based on institutional availability, but adding either baricitinib or tocilizumab. A couple of areas of uncertainty uh, that I wanna highlight. Uh, one is the use of the monoclonal antibodies for hospitalized patients. I, at the beginning, showed you, I think, convincing evidence that these antibodies work to prevent hospitalization. What about once someone gets into the hospital? 
So this was studied also in recovery in about 10,000 hospitalized people. They got randomized to either usual care with casirumab and devimab, very high dose. This is a higher dose than what we use for outpatients or usual care alone. When they looked at all comers, there was really no difference in mortality, 20% in one group, 21% in the other. But, and this is the interesting part, when they broke it down by those who were seronegative for anti-spike protein antibody, that is people who had not developed their own endogenous antibody response, then they showed reduced mortality with the antibody. So if you look over on your far right, you'll see usual care. In the black line, you'll see Regencove, which is this um, antibody. In the red and in the seronegative group, you're seeing substantial benefit, no such benefit in the seropositive group. In a study um, presented by um, Eleftherios Melanakis at um, ID Week this year, this is looking at hospitalized patients on low flow or no oxygen. So this is separate from recovery, about 1,100 people on low flow or no oxygen, randomized to either get the antibodies or placebo. In the seronegatives, in the graph, you're seeing a 55% reduction in mortality with the antibodies. In the seropositives, not shown here, uh, no reduction in mortality. So what we need is a rapid and reliable serologic test to identify those of our hospitalized patients who are seronegative, which is where these antibodies would have a benefit. We don't yet um, have an authorization for this, but again, happy to discuss this uh, in the discussion period. Fluvoxamine um, has gotten recent press. Um, this is based on a study called the TOGETHER trial. What's the TOGETHER trial? This was a placebo-controlled, randomized, adaptive platform trial in Brazil. Participants who had risk factors for severe COVID-19, and there was about 1,500 people, were randomized um, if they were within seven days from symptom onset. Flavoxamine was given twice a day or placebo. And uh, let me pause here and just uh, take a step back and describe the rationale for flavoxamine. This works by uh, on the sigma-1 receptor. Um, it's possible that that then has an anti-inflammatory effect. Not completely clear, but that was one of the potential mechanisms. And a few, one small trial and one case series supported um, studying it in a larger trial, and that's what the TOGETHER study is. So the primary endpoint of the TOGETHER study was a composite, a combination of hospitalization or ED observation for six hours or more. That composite endpoint occurred in 11% of the fluvoxamine group, 16% of the placebo. So that's a, a 32% reduction in, in hospitalization or ED observation. Um, you see the results in that table and you see that it is statistically significant. When they zeroed down on people who were just hospitalized, not the people who spent six hours or more in the emergency department, then there was no difference, 10% versus 13%. There was also no difference in hospitalization rates in terms of duration or in death or in viral clearance. And most of these folks had not received vaccines. So right now, a number of the guidelines are, are reviewing these data um, and I'll come back to, to where those are right now. And the final uh, point I'll make is on inhaled steroids. Because of time, I won't go through these in detail. There are some studies for inhaled budesonide um, showing a, a benefit. But in a large study called the principal study, although there was improved time to recovery, there was not a substantial effect on hospitalization and death in, the, um, in this larger study. And in a very um, preprinted study uh, with an alternative inhaled steroid, 
there was some, there was no improvement in alleviation of symptoms, slight effect on ED visits and hospitalization, but no appreciable effect on hospitalization and death. So here are the areas of uncertainty. I think, well, I'll start with areas of not uncertainty, which is um, not recommended or suggested, which are hydroxychloroquine, azithro, lopinavir, ritonavir, convalescent plasma, and hospitalized patients not recommended or suggested. I think where there's discussion are things like ivermectin, fluvoxamine, inhaled steroids, vitamin C, zinc, and, and colchicine. So here's kind of a putting it, putting it all together, all on, on one slide, essentially. What you're seeing here, starting from pre-exposure prophylaxis, where vaccines, of course, are our mainstay. That's really the way to, to prevent COVID-19 is with vaccines. Maybe tixagevimab, silgevimab will have a role in heavily immunosuppressed patients. We'll see what the FDA does with the um, request for authorization. For post-exposure prophylaxis, we've talked about a little bit about Bamedi and Casarivimab and Devimab for those who are high risk, not fully vaccinated or immunosuppressed. Once you get into mild or moderate illness, we're talking about Bamedi, Casarivimab, and Devimab or Citrovimab for those who are at high risk. I put a question mark next to Molnupiravir that's being reviewed at the end of November. And I should have put a question mark for this 332 drug um, that just came out this morning. Um, we'll see where that goes, but an interesting um, new development. And then once people have severe disease, that's when you're talking about remdesivir with dexamethasone. Maybe castrovimab and devimab will have a role in seronegatives. In some people with worsening disease, I do think the IL-6 inhibitors or a JAK inhibitor, either tocilizumab or baricitinib, should be added to dexamethasone. So here are my final thoughts on um, uh, COVID-19 treatment. I think it's pretty clear it's, uh, that therapy for COVID-19 really depends both on the hosts, but also importantly on the severity of disease. This is not a one-size-fits-all um, infectious disease. Um, antiviral therapy, including the anti-SARS-CoV-2 monoclonal antibodies have their greatest benefit early in the disease when viral replication is active and perhaps in seronegative hospitalized people and people who don't mount their own immune response to the virus immunomodulators, including dexamethasone and tocilizumab or baricitinib in select patients have their greatest benefit later in the course of disease when there is excess inflammation, should not be used, should not be considered in people not on oxygen. And new therapies, including oral agents, I've, I've mentioned two such agents, um, are clearly needed. So all of us um, came up really through HIV. So I just wanna, on my last slide, uh, draw a couple of lessons from HIV for COVID-19. And this really is mostly focused on the therapeutics, although the last point extends to vaccines. Um, early on with HIV, of course, we'll remember a time when there was extraordinarily pressures, extraordinary pressures to deploy interventions. There was equally actually more um, pressure around um, March 2020 around COVID therapeutics. We clearly remember the time when internally, colleagues, patients, enormous pressures to deploy interventions. But just as it was with HIV, tempering um, that pressure to deploy interventions to find out what did and didn't work, that was what came out of those HIV clinical trials in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s. Um, 
people have talked about, can you do a randomized trial during a pandemic? Clearly, not only can you do it, but you must do it during a pandemic. You must do a randomized trial because essentially you have no idea what works and what doesn't work with the new pathogen. Um, so not only must we do, can we do randomized trials, but we must do those trials. And just like with HIV, COVID-19 therapeutics has been an iterative process. It, it has been one drug on top of another, one advance on top of another, as we saw with HIV. Uh, but um, HIV has taught us, and we've neglected this at our, our peril, which is that global equity uh, is essential, and, and nowhere is that clearer than in HIV uh, and, then in, and also in COVID. So with that, I think I'm right at the hour, a half hour, and I will stop. Here are my acknowledgments, several colleagues, and thank you all for your attention. Yeah, Raj, thanks very much for a run through um, some um, an increasingly complicated, thank goodness, data set, because uh, it's great that there are now a lot of options that we're still trying to um, sort out in terms of how best to use them in the in the right patient populations. I think the point that you made about um, this being a disease that you have to think carefully about the stage of the disease in the host in terms of which um, intervention to uh, prioritize is critical. And it's certainly something that some of these very large clinical trials have not done, which makes it easy to miss effects uh, in populations that really do see benefits. Uh, let, there are a number of questions and answers that have come in, and uh, let's uh, start with uh, one of them, which is what the plans are for um, looking at some of these um, oral antivirals uh, in kids. So the oral antivirals in kids. So what I know is that, um... The studies to date have been done in adults. Um, I uh, imagine that um, there's interest and plans to look at it in kids, but I have not seen any trials announced um, yet um, in children. Um, the data in children, similarly for monoclonal antibodies, is very, very limited. And so um, that's something to be cognizant about. Um, what essentially the pediatric ID people think about in terms of the monoclonal antibodies for children, and when I'm saying monoclonal antibodies, I'm talking about the um, anti-SARS-CoV-2 monoclonal antibodies. It can sometimes get confusing because tocilizumab is a monoclonal antibody, but it's an immune modulator, not an antiviral antibody. But what the pediatricians are thinking about with kids is essentially a case-by-case -case basis. There's clearly some children um, that are at higher risk than others based on um, uh, uh, comorbidities. And so that's where, um, even though that hasn't been well studied in children, that's where they're sometimes applied. As far as the oral therapies, clearly, um, the um, uh, barrier to using them is much lower than with uh, intravenous or even subcutaneous or even intramuscular antibodies. Uh, but then I think it's li likely to come down to a similar consideration, which is, um, you know, what is the risk of the child who, who has the COVID? Um, we can talk about molnupiravir. Um, the discussion that's unfolding right now is in preclinical data, molnupiravir, because it works through this um, mechanism of making the virus um, essentially um, accumulate mutations so it doesn't replicate. People have talked about whether that might affect human cells and therefore whether it could have mutagenicity or effects on, on, on human cells. So this is a complicated area and I'll try to summarize what I know about this. Um, there's a test called the AIMS test, which is done in bacteria, not in, in human cells, where molnupiravir scores positive on the AIM test. That means it causes mutations in bacteria. There are human cells 
um, and other kinds of cells um, where it does not score positive in terms of causing mutations. Nevertheless, when the study was done, it was not done in pregnant women, and it was not done um, in women who are breastfeeding. And so we will see what the FDA does with this, what the UK did with this, because uh, when the UK authorized molnupiravir a couple of days ago, is they um, authorized its use, but they excluded pregnant women and lactating women. Uh, and they also um, called for contraception for four days after the, the five-day course of molnupiravir. Um, they did not put any um, con uh, other uh, limitations on its use other than what I'm mentioning. So, Okay, thank you. Oh, and I, I should say within five days of symptoms and things like that. So, yeah. so while we're on the, anti the oral antivirals, the, uh, the data that you showed, particularly with the Pfizer drug, uh, is quite encouraging in terms of efficacy. Um, are we going to still be talking about monoclonals a year from now? You know, I think if these drugs... Um, see the light of day, which I think there's good reason to think they will. Um, I think um, we may be in a situation where just like with other viral respiratory infections, we're not using antibodies, but we're using oral drugs as we do for influenza. The one viral respiratory infection that for prevention antibodies really are a key is um, for RSV and, and infants. Um, infants who are premature or have high-risk conditions are given antibodies to prevent RSV during the RSV season. Um, an interesting study from ID Week. Right now, when these infants are given monoclonal antibodies to prevent RSV, they're get, giving it monthly during the RSV season. There was a study at ID Week this year that looked at a longer-lasting antibody for infants that were not just premature, but even term infants that look look good. So we'll see where where that longer antibody goes. But I I think that your um, the person asking is right that monoclonal antibodies come with the attendant you know, need for some kind of direct interaction with the healthcare system. So people have asked about um, the drug, um, the 332 drug, the Pfizer drug. Um, it does come co-formulated with ritonavir. It's a pharmacologic booster. I mean, that will be an issue for a small, or, you know, a, a some percentage of people, but not a, a large, uh, not the majority of people. Um, and then molnupiravir has this issue that I, I doubt it will be, um, used in, in people who are pregnant, you know, I think it, it won't be used in that. So, um, but yeah, I think the oral drugs are where the future is likely to be. So one of the things that I think the, um, that has been a political issue is the uh, treatment, not prevention um, demonstration um, penchant we've seen around the country, uh, people often wearing red. Do you have any comments about uh, relying on therapeutics rather than being vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, I, um, have heard that said, of course, and it is a concern. I mean, I, th I think the way to formulate this essentially is as a, a backup plan to vaccines. These are not substitutes for vaccines. These are backups if, for whatever reason, someone hasn't been vaccinated or, or if someone has had uh, a breakthrough infection and is, for example, very immunocompromised. But I think it's misconstrued um, as a substitute for vaccine, or it's, it's a mistake to think of it that way. I mean, going back to first principles of, of medicine, if not life, is prevention is always better than, than therapy. And, um, and I think you got to stick to first principles. So. And there are a couple of questions here about the use of, um, of monoclonals um, and oral antivirals in the context of vaccinated people who may not have had a, a robust response to vaccines. Any comments about how to think about using these uh, agents there? 
Yeah, and and immunocompromised people who have not had a good response to vaccines. Yeah, I, I think that's where they um, really will have a role. That is, you know, in our hospital, thankfully, our numbers um, are much lower than they were last year, but but still in the 30s in terms of hospitalized patients. And the majority of those people who are hospitalized are just that, you know, just that group. People are immunocompromised who have had breakthrough infection despite the vaccine. And I think that's where knowing uh, whether we can use antibodies, whether we could use these oral antivirals. Now, one of the challenges is by the time someone is hospitalized, um, it's a little less clear as to whether, for example, molnupiravir, the drug that I was talking about, there was a hospitalized patient study with molnupiravir that was stopped um, because presumably because of a lack of effect or, or presumably stopped because of futility. So I'm not certain that they'll have an effect at that stage. Um, I showed you some evidence for the antibodies and seronegatives. So I think that's where the, the need for therapeutics is not likely to go away as um, in hospitals until we get vaccines that really work for the most immunosuppressed people. Did, did I get that question right? I'm looking at my screen to see if I... There, there are two kind of related questions about yeah. kind of how to think about these. It include, yeah. would include people with advanced HIV infection as well. Who, yeah, yeah. Are... You know, I'm looking at the question on my screen. I. In um, severely immunocompromised patients, someone who's gotten an anti-CD20 antibody, reduced response to vaccine, if they are, I, I think that's where uh, antibodies are, are likely to be benefit. And I would extend that to people with advanced HIV. Now, people with advanced HIV, the, the most important thing we can do is to get them on ART. Um, this is not, I mean, that um, is our highest priority. But, um, but yes, I do think monoclonal antibodies and immunocompromised patients. Right now, you can get it through an expanded access program through the companies if they're on low flow, not yet on high flow or um, mechanical ventilation. And we've done that. I suspect many of you who work in the hospitals have, have used that expanded access. And I think that's, that's warranted. There's another question here about a patient who um, has um, underlying comorbidities, including, say, cardiac disease, who comes in. Uh, with shortness of breath is on O2. And then as things are cleared up, it looks like the admission was really due to a cardiac issue and then is found to have COVID. And how, do you, how would you uh, triage the COVID interventions there? You know, I, we've definitely seen that a uh, fair amount, which is that um, it's not the COVID driving the, the shortness of breath. It's, it's either pulmonary or cardiac issues. And so then I would um, not view that person as having the same indications for dexamethasone, not view that person as having an indication for tocilizumab. Um, and so that's a really important point to stress that just because someone has got COVID and is short of breath, just because someone has COVID and is um, on oxygen doesn't mean that you should be treating their COVID. It may be much more important to identify their heart disease and, and treat that. So if, if there was good evidence for that, then I would uh, focus all my efforts on treating the heart disease and and not put them in the dexamethasone, baricitinib bucket. Okay, and two um, last questions here. Uh, one is about uh, uh, aveptadil. Uh, any thought about that? Yeah, you know, I've this is one that I'm we're watching. I haven't um, personally seen enough to to be able to comment um, authoritatively on on this one. Um, so something I, I know that. The way these guidelines panels are kind of set up is there's an antiviral group of which I'm the, an active member, and then there's an immunomodulator group. And so that's one that I've heard some of my colleagues talked about, but I, I can't tell you kind of definitive yay or nay on that one. So. And then uh, Meredith Clements asking you to comment on some of these uh, adaptive trial designs, the pros and cons from your perspective. 
So they've been um, really critical to the COVID response. And one of the challenges I have with their interpretation is, and I'll give um, one of the UK studies as an example, um, the remap cap study. It's really important to have contemporaneous controls. Some, um, actually a biostatistician made this point. If you don't have contemporaneous controls and you use an adaptive design where your controls are not coming from the same time period, you can easily get misled because there's, you know, this has just evolved so dramatically in terms of um, not only interventions, but mortality. And so I think they're important to be able to reject or introduce new drugs quickly. That's their main benefit is that they're set up so that you, you can um, make progress rapidly by discarding a drug if it's not working, introducing a new drug in its place. But um, you got to have that extra level of um, contemporaneous controls. The part that's been hard for me is they all have these Bayesian analyses, which are just very, very hard to, to understand. Um, but, you know, so. Well, you have to have a, a role for statisticians. These yes, Dave Glidden to, to explain go. that to us. So. Well, thanks very much for a great talk and great uh, question and answer period, uh, Raj, and uh, for uh, being with us today. You're juggling a lot of things, including the uh, CFAR directors meeting. So we appreciate your taking the time to join us today. We're right on time. We're going to spend uh, about um, 15 minutes with a break, and then we're going to come back uh, to Dr. Kellum's uh, talk first, because uh, Dr. Monica Gandhi is also involved in the CFAR meeting, has to uh, participate in something uh, during when her talk would have been. So we'll come back uh, at uh, 1025 Pacific time, 125 Eastern time uh, with a discussion about CDC guidelines on ST STIs. Thanks very much. Uh, please enjoy your break. <laughs>